Mission Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hello, readers. Thank you so much for listening today. I'm going to share an interview I had with Karen Wittemeyer. Karen Wittemeyer is a best-selling author. She is also the um, winner of the ACFW Carol Award, the Holton Medallion, and the Inspirational Reader's Choice Award. She writes, warm-hearted historical romance with a flair for humor, feisty heroines, and swoon-worthy Texas heroes. I greatly enjoyed chatting with Karen. I've heard a lot about her as an author and her books. So I hope that you guys enjoy this conversation. Karen, I'm so glad you could join me on the show today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I have heard so much about you and your work. Um, Your website says you write stories of true love, adventure, and faith set against the backdrop of the American West. So when I first started this podcast last fall, One of the questions I asked my guests was who their favorite historical fiction author was. I don't ask that question anymore because people had such a hard time narrowing it down. But more than one guest mentioned your name. They said, um, although I think they pronounced it wrong, but they mentioned Karen Wittemeyer. (laughs) (laughs) That's a huge honor. Yeah. So how many books do you have published? Um, If you count my uh, shorter novellas as well, I believe I'm up to 22. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. So um, at the time of this recording, your most recent novel is The Heart's Charge, which released in June. So can you tell me about this book and the series it's part of? Sure. Um, This is book two in the uh, Hanger's Horseman series. And um, it's a series of uh, that focus on four men who were former cavalry officers. um, And uh, they have since left the military and are determined to use their skills um, kind of as vigilantes for justice. So um, they go around and help people who um, do not have other recourse. So they uh, look for those that are in need. And sometimes God puts people in their path that they weren't expecting. And this Mm -hmm. is one of those stories. So each book can be read as a standalone, but they have characters that carry over from, so the four men are in all of the books. This book, um, The Heart's Charge, focuses on two of the uh, former cavalry officers, um, and they follow their stories. So um, you have Mark Wallace and Jonah Brooks, and the, the story opens with the two of them just out delivering a horse to someone who had bought it from uh, their boss's ranch, and um, they end up delivering a baby instead. So <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> I read the beginning. Yeah, it's it's exciting. So, what inspired this novel or this series? So, I'm a child of the '80s and uh, grew up watching, um, you know, '80s television mm-hmm. and uh, early '90s, and so. Two of the the series that I remember watching um, as a young girl were um, The A-Team and The Magnificent Seven. And so this series is like a meshing of those two. Um, So you have the four ex-military heroes that are out trying to make a difference for good. um, And then it's all this Western uh, setting. Um, So I kind of mesh those two ideas together. Oh, yeah, that's great. Um, So you love to write stories set in the West. And what 
what makes you keep coming back to that setting for your stories? Always, even as a reader, um, I've always been drawn to historical novels. When I was young, I, I loved books like the Little House on the Prairie series and mm-hmm. the Anne of Green Gables series. Those just really struck a chord with me. I loved books about horses too, so I read all of the uh, Black Stallion series. Uh, yeah. So, as a those those are what really f- kind of formed my my reading habits as a young girl. And then as I got older, of course, I loved I fell in love with romance and. So So um, historical romance became my favorite genre to read. And um, I enjoy reading books that are set um, like in England and other places. But um, now that I live in Texas, I felt like, you know, this is really the heart of of what I love and what is around me. And I have so much inspiration that's around me as well. And Mm. so it was just, it seemed like the right fit for me. And often you hear people say, you know, write what you love. And I'm really relatively picky as far as books that I read. I almost only read historical romance. It's pretty much all I read. And so because of that, I couldn't imagine writing anything that was different than that, because that's really what I'm passionate about. Right. Okay. So you mentioned like loving horses or loving the books about horses. Do you have horses or have you had horses as well? I do not. Um, When I was growing up, though, I had um, a family friend uh, at church who did own horses, and I remember Mm -hmm. going over to his place and and riding upon occasion. Also, when I uh, was growing up, I lived a little bit out in the country. It wasn't really far. We had like seven acres of land. Um, and yeah. down the road were people who owned horses. And I would always, you know, walk down the road and and pet the horse and feed them some, you know, weeds that were growing around. Right. Um, so I've always enjoyed being around horses, but I'm not a super experienced horsewoman. Okay. Do you find that that part of the book challenging to write about the horses and riders? Or do you know enough from your experience? I feel like um, I know enough to get started based off of my uh, somewhat limited experience, but also living in Texas, it's around me all over the place. Yes. And there's a lot of people around me who know a lot about horses. In fact, I happened to go to church with um, our uh, the farrier for for our area who does horseshoeing oh, and you know yeah. things like that, and so I have a lot of resources um, that I can ask questions. I also do a lot of you know searching online. I watch YouTube videos on okay, how are you actually saddling this horse, and how do you fit the bit into the mouth, and how do you mm-hmm. you know? And so I do a lot of YouTubing as well, just to kind of get the full experience. Right. So you mentioned ahead of time that it's challenging to write characters of color as a white author. How do you navigate this? Because I think one of the cavalry members or former cavalry members was um, is a man of color. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, Jonah Brooks uh, is a former Buffalo soldier, and um, he he and his uh, love interest in the story, uh, Eliza Sutherland, um, are both people of color. And I I really wanted to write his full story. I didn't want him to just be a um, secondary character that didn't get a robust uh, point of view and, and all of that, because I felt like that would would not do him justice. Um, right. But as a as a white woman, um, I felt very intimidated by the challenge of writing from his point of view because I really do not have any experience um, 
to match and to understand what it's like to live in a black person's skin. Right. Um, so I, I really did my best to do a lot of research, but beyond that, I, um, reached out to two, um, authors and, uh, publishing, publishing industry people um, to be sensitivity readers for me. So Mm -hmm. I had uh, one author and one editor who worked as my sensitivity readers, and they read every chapter um, that had to do with these two characters and gave me wonderful feedback. Um, The author is also, um, she has military background as well. And so that just added another layer of um, that experience to to bring to the character. And I found their feedback so, so helpful. I don't think I could have done this nearly um, as well as I did without them. And any, any errors are strictly my own. They, you know, they, they did a wonderful job. Mm, that's great. Um, I've also written black characters, so I, I understand the struggle um, to present them realistically, and yet understanding that you can't you can't fully comprehend what they um, have been through or or what their experience would be, especially in a in a setting that's you know nineteenth century Texas, yes. where it's you know prejudice is rampant. So right, right, totally. So I understand that you took a research trip to the place where this novel is set. Now you live in Texas, but and it's set in Texas, but not near where you live, I'm assuming. Correct. Um, so this takes place in uh, Lano County in a, a small town called Kingsland, Texas. And okay. I don't always get to visit the places that I write about, but when I do, it's just, it's such a thrill for me. Um, mm-hmm. Number one, just to be able to walk the same, you know, road that my characters might have walked on. Um, but you just get another layer of uh, research authenticity that you don't get just from reading books. And so it was so fascinating to be able to see the place. Um, I, I actually stayed in a building owned by the Antlers Hotel, and the Antlers Hotel was built, I think, in 1901 um, after the railroad came through. It was just a little bit too modern to add into my story because my story took place in the late 1890s, um, but it had all that feel from the era. And so being able to surround myself with that would really helped me kind of get immersed into the time period. Oh, great. Yeah, that's wonderful. I love being able to visit the place you're writing about. It's it gives you just a, a richer appreciation for it. It and- does. And there's there's this um bridge that's actually still standing. Um that was the the bridge that the railroad came across on. Oh. Um Kingsland is kind of an isolated place. It um, is where the Llano and the Colorado Rivers meet. And so the the town itself is almost um, surrounded on like three sides by water. And so at the at the time that the story was written, the only way people from the east could come easily into Kingsland was by crossing this bridge that is for the railroad. And um, there's no trestles or walkways or anything like that. So like kids that were coming across to go to school. They just walked on this bridge. Oh, wow. No, no railing, no, <laughs> just, just coming across. Like, like spaces between the, the railroad ties, right? Yeah, it's, it's nuts. And um, so when I was um, first trying to get some information about this place, a lot of times I like to look up town maps online and that kind of thing, um, historic maps. And mm-hmm. um, 
But for some towns, especially if they were never incorporated, um, the map sources that I usually have access to were not available. And this was one of those towns that was never actually incorporated. And so mm-hmm. I reached out to the Chamber of Commerce and they put me in touch with a local historian who had actually written um, a book about the history of Kingsland. His name was John Hallowell, and I reached out to him, and he was so generous. He shared um, wow. historic photos with me. He gave me some insights. He let me see the the first like chapter that covered the really early years of his book, mm-hmm. and I found some really fascinating tidbits about people who got stuck on this bridge when a train was coming. Oh, my goodness. And I knew I had to use that somewhere in the book because that was just too good not to yes. use. And so finding those little tidbits, and I won't give anything away because it really is one of the pivotal story, oh. <laughs> pivotal scenes in the book. Um, so, but it it does it comes into into play in a very dramatic fashion. Um, mm. And so being able to see that bridge, and I I didn't get very far out on the bridge, but I did walk a little bit <laughs> just so that I could kind of see what it was like a little bit, and then uh, came back because I. I didn't know. I didn't know if trains still ran on that bridge. Right. I really didn't have to reenact that scene. <laughs> so, no. But it made it for really fun times. Oh yeah, I bet. So um, aside from sometimes visiting the scene or the setting for your book, what are some other ways that you research? So I do a lot online. Um, I look through. Um, a lot of times when I get an idea, you, you start going down those rabbit trails, right? And you mm-hmm. sometimes you find stuff that's like, okay, that's interesting, but I'll never use it at all. Sometimes you find something that's really um, kind of golden. And I happened to run across some information about a legendary lost silver mine called Los Amalgres. And I didn't really know much about it. It was tied to um, Jim Bowie, you know, from the Alamo. You know, he, he was mm-hmm. legend, legend has it that he discovered it and then never had a chance to claim it because he died at the Alamo. And so it's just out there somewhere waiting for people to find it. Mm. And I did some some more research and there happens to be um, one prevailing theory that something that was uncovered, I believe in the 70s, 70s or 80s, I'm not sure, I can't remember, um, that somebody believed that it was found or evidence of it was found on Pack Saddle Mountain. And Pack Saddle Mountain is right outside of Kingsland. And Mm. so I found, you know, just these random connections. And so my whole um, uh, story arc for the villain was now surrounding this legendary lost silver mine and her being sure that it's out here at Pack Saddle Mountain. And so um, it was it was one of those things that sometimes you you go down these rabbit trails and and you don't get anything out of it. And sometimes you find silver. I was going to say gold, but sometimes you find silver. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that you can then use and and part of your plot is developed because of that. Yeah. Oh wow, that's cool. So then how do you do you do the bulk of your research before you write or how does it fit in with your writing process? I would say a lot of the big picture things are done beforehand because I want to know a basic idea of where my plot is headed, who my characters are as far as their um their occupations. The two heroines in this story run a foundling home um, for uh, discarded children. And so I needed to do some information, uh, get some information about what that would entail, how fundraising would work for them, you know, what their needs would be. Um, 
And so a lot of that is done ahead of time, but there's always things that as you're writing, it's like, ooh, I don't know if that is historically accurate. I need to go look that up. Or how would they do this? Or how long would it take them to, you know, go by horse between uh, Kingsland and Lano? And, you know, so those little things you research along the way. Mm-hmm. One of my coworkers, as it turns out, um, has um, property in Lano County, and he had a... Um, a big like coffee table book that was a collection of the county history um, for, you know, going all the way back to early times. And he said, would this be helpful to you? Would you be interested in looking at it? And I said, I would love to look at that. And I looked through it and found some really, because it's all focused on the actual people who lived there and their descendants and, you know, that kind of thing. And so there are actually two real people mentioned by name in my story. They weren't major Mm. characters you know, sideline characters, but they, I used the actual names that I found in that book that he had um, going back to that time period. So the sheriff of the county is the actual name of the sheriff of the county. And then one of the teachers who taught um, there, she was mentioned by name as well. So little things like that are just so exciting to find and a great way to add authenticity to the story. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So you've had another recent release, a Christmas novella collection called Under the Under the Texas Mistletoe, um, that released in August. Can you tell me about that collection? Sure. This one was really fun to put together. A couple of the stories um, have been released in different forms before. So, Gift of the Heart is the third story in the collection. It was part of another collection that came out. I think a couple years ago, um, that was called the Christmas heirloom. And Mm -hmm. so that, that had been published before the second story. Um, some of my, uh, readers talk about the Archer brothers being their favorite characters of mine. This is kind of a reunion story. It's an Archer family Christmas, getting all the Archer Mm -hmm. brothers back together again for a Christmas celebration. And Mm -hmm. of the four Archer brothers, Jim Archer never really had his own story told from his own point of view. So this is told from Jim and Cassie's point of view. And so it was a lot of fun for me to kind of have this reunion story, letting everybody get together again, seeing now they all have kids, what's going on in their lives, you know, that kind of thing. Plus, of course, there's an outlaw and an adventure and, and sudden death and <laughs> you know, <laughs> things like that that have to happen to make the story exciting as well. And then the first story um, is a brand new, never before um, published story. Um, called A Texas Christmas Carol. And as the name implies, it's kind Mm -hmm. of a Western retelling of the Dickens classic, A Christmas Carol. And it was really fun to give it a completely new twist with uh, taking it in a Western direction and turning it into a romance. So who knew that the Scrooge character could (laughs) actually be romantic? But But we do pull it off and it ends up being a a lot of fun. Oh, that's great. That sounds really interesting. So I, I want to know a little bit about your career path. You mentioned that you have a coworker. So does that mean you have a job besides writing? I do. I work full-time uh, for Abilene Christian University here in Abilene, okay. Texas, where I'm from. And this is actually my alma mater as well. So I went here as a student and um, started working right out of um, college after I finished my master's degree. Then I, mm-hmm. I stayed at home for five years being a stay-at-home mom. And during that time, uh, my husband went through a kind of a, a job crisis where he found out that his position was being cut. And I had 
three babies at home and I've had this panic moment of, I need to do something to contribute to the family income. I'd always thought about, you know, maybe trying writing one day since I've always been a bookworm since I was little, but I didn't really realize what all was entailed with that. So (laughs) I I had this epiphany. I know I will, I will start writing books and make money right away. And that'll be a great way to help support my family. Not realizing it was going to take me six years to actually get my first book contract. But that was kind of the little nudge that um, got me to take my dream of someday trying to, no, I'm actually going to going to do this for real. Um, so I ended up coming back to work for Abilene Christian University and um, did that for my day job while I was trying to do the writing thing on the side. And so now I still have both jobs. Um, I, I work in the registrar's office and I am in charge of the catalog. So I get to do my nonfiction writing <laughs> here mm-hmm. uh, at Abilene Christian and then uh, do my my fiction writing in my off time. So it's kind of juggling two careers, but um, yes. they both have their own pros and cons. My three children um, are all ACU students. Uh, one- oh, wow will graduate in May. One is a a sophomore and one is a graduate who is now working on her PhD at Texas A&M. So. Oh, wow. That's great. So can you tell me a little bit about your path to publication then once you said it took you six, six years. Um, So tell me how that, how that worked out. So I started off with um, shorter pieces. I figured that would be easier <laughs> to yeah. get my 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 feet wet. Um, so I started with with small pieces. I had um, a couple of short pieces published in Cup of Comfort anthologies, which are like chicken soup for the soul kind of yes. first person in inspirational narratives. Um, I had a couple of uh, biblical fiction pieces, really children's Bible stories that were published in um, Clubhouse Junior Magazine. So I kind of started with these little pieces, kind of getting my feet wet. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a, an idea for a, uh, a collection of stories of women in the Bible, um, focusing on lesser known female characters in the Bible and writing their stories. So I, I did fictionalized accounts of their stories and then paired them with, um, Bible story con or Bible study content and mm. um, had enough to make a full uh, book out of that. But um, that never went anywhere as far as being published. Maybe someday we'll see. Right. <laughs> but after that, I decided, okay, I've done, an- I've done enough kind of getting things a little bit larger, a little bit larger. Now it's time to try a full novel. Mm-hmm. And so I spent time writing my first novel. I intended it to be the first of a series and um, had it completed, went to, I'd been going to um, the ACFW conferences, American Christian Fiction Writers Conferences yes. um, for several years and finally had a full fiction manuscript to pitch. And so I was very excited. It happened mm-hmm. to be in Dallas, which was close to where I live. And so I decided I would volunteer to go early and would, you know, help stuff envelopes or whatever they needed, you know, volunteers to do. And so I showed up early. They had me stuffy envelopes. I was in a room with, you know, I didn't know anybody. I was in a room with a bunch of other people who were stuffing envelopes and mm-hmm. just chatting and talking. There was a lady standing next to me. Her name was Karen. My name was Karen. I thought, oh, well, that's kind of fun. Then I started paying attention to what people were saying in this room. And it turns out this was Karen Schurer, who at the time was an editor at Bethany House. And Bethany House was like my dream publisher. If I could pick, that would be where I wanted to go. 
And I wasn't quite sure what to do because, you know, they tell you before you go, you know, you never pitch in the bathroom and you don't do, you know, (laughs) so I was like, what's the protocol for this? I don't know. And I was just a nervous wreck. Um, So I, you know, I didn't really want to pitch my book there while I was, you know, just stuffing envelopes. So I just made a point of, hey, we have the same first name. That's kind of fun. Maybe I'll see you (laughs) later on during the conference, you know. Um, And this was, uh, let's see, goodness, this was, I think, 2000. Eight, maybe I think this was 2008, and so back then they were still um, having faculty host tables at lunch, and you could choose to sit at a table mm-hmm. with somebody who was on uh, either an editor or an agent or a, a multi-published author. You could choose to sit at their table, and you get to right. kind of pick their brain during lunch. Yeah, they still do that at some conferences. So that's right. Yes, and it's so helpful. Yes. Um, and so I, I happened to be uh, coming in at lunch one day. There was her table right next to the door. There were still seats available, so I plopped down at the table. And you know, as usually happens, you go around and you give your little you know two second uh, pitch about what your book is about. And she's you know very polite and smiling. And oh, that's great. That's great. Mm-hmm. I did not have the courage to. Uh, to ask any more questions after that, but some brave <laughs> lady at the table said, "You know, can we send you our proposals?" And uh, Karen Sure was very gracious, and she said, "Yes, after the um, conference is over, if you say, you know, in your subject line, I sat at your table, um, then we'll look at your proposal." Well. Praise God for that brave woman. I don't even remember who she was, but she changed my life. (laughs) Wow. I I got home. I sent off my proposal. Um, Karen got back with me relatively quickly and said, um, please send us your whole manuscript. And I was like, God has just lined up one thing after another, and he's just making this happen. I was so excited. (laughs) And then I got the rejection letter. (laughs) And I was like, oh, no, I thought for sure this was what God was lining up. Yes. But it was, as far as rejections go, that was the best one you could get. Because basically what they told me was, we like your writing, but we've just published a story that has some similar elements to this one. And so we don't want to publish this particular book because it's too similar to something we've recently done. Mm -hmm. But they came back and said... There's one thing we really like about this story. Oh, I was like, what do what what is it? You know, <laughs> what, right. what do you like? I will I will get you something that you like. And they said, we really like this dress shop. Could you make us a, a a new story about this dress shop? Now you have to understand that in the original manuscript, the dress shop burned to the ground by page four. Oh, so no. this wasn't like I could just you know rewrite the manuscript and make it fit for them. I had to start over from scratch and make a whole new story about this dress shop. So I was determined to do that. In the meantime, I was getting close to done with what was supposed to be the second book in this series. Mm. And so I said, I will write you a book about that dress shop. But in the meantime, I'm almost done with this book. Would you be interested in looking at this? And they came back and said, well, yes, I, we'd be interested. So when you get it done, you know, send us an email. So several months go by. It's almost time for conference to come around again for the next year. And mm-hmm. I'm sure they don't remember me. But I finally have that other manuscript finished. And so I get my courage up and I type an email. You probably don't remember me. You know, here's the information about my book. Would you be interested in seeing a proposal? And they're like, oh, we remember you. Send us the whole thing. I was like, oh, this is so exciting. So I sent them off the whole manuscript and they came back and they said, you know what? We really like this. We want to meet with you at conference, but we still want something with that dress shop book. (laughs) 
It's like, okay, I will get you something. I had one chapter written by the time conference came around for the dress shop book. Yeah. And, um, but they had seen enough from me that they were ready to offer me a three book deal, but they didn't want to um, launch me until I had the dress shop book finished. And so mm. that dress shop book became a tailor-made bride, which was my debut novel. And then the oh. book that I had been working on ended up uh, becoming Head in the Clouds, which was uh, released. My first book came out in June of 2010 and Head in the Clouds released in October of 2010 because I had already had it written. And so it was ready to go. So it just, right. it was one of those things where God just put me at the right place at the right time. And when I wasn't brave enough, somebody else spoke up and oh, it just, yeah. it just worked out perfectly. That's amazing. I love to hear all the different authors I talk to their stories because it's just so clear how the God works it out in, in his best timing. So, so true. I just think it's so interesting and exciting. Um, so what are you working on next? Can you tell us about it? Sure. I've just wrapped up um, the last book in the Hangers Horseman series. It will be called In Honor's Defense, and it will uh, mm -hmm. come out next June of 2022. And I have started writing a new series. My new series, um, the working title of the series is uh, Twisted Texas Tales. And I'm, I'm taking some classic fairy tales and giving them a Western twist uh, with some other oh, twists cool. thrown in as well. So the very first one I'm working on is kind of a twist on uh, Snow White. And so it's, it's been a lot of fun working on that. I'm only probably about a quarter of the way into it. Um, but I, I love fairy tales. I grew up watching Disney. I, you know, that's just that's my happy place. And so it's fun to kind of take that and give it a, a new spin with the Western 19th century Americana twist. So, Right. That's wonderful. So this is a question I ask all my guests, and I know you've listened to some of my episodes, so you'll know what's coming. Um, how do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? That's, that's a great question. Um, History is, you know, you've always heard the the statement that, you know, if you don't learn from history, you're going to repeat the mistakes um, yes. that have been made. And I think that is so true. I think one of the, the biggest things that we can learn um, from reading historical, whether it's novels or biographies or um, nonfiction, um, mm -hmm. is to, to learn the effect that history has on people, on individual people. When I was um, young and reading all these, you know, historical novels was my favorite way of learning history. I actually really did not enjoy history in school at all mm -hmm. because it always seemed to focus on wars and politics and dates. And that wasn't interesting to me. What was right. interesting to me was the lives of the everyday people. What were they going through? What things were important to them? And um, so when I, when I look at what history has to teach us, I want to look at how it affected individual people um, on, on a personal level, not on the big global scale. And, you know, you, there's so many, there's so many different ways um, that history impacts people um, from just little things like inventions and how they made life easier, but then how they also created new temptations. Um, you know, just so many things. And of course, from a Christian worldview on, on how, um, morals change or don't change, how um, spirituality changes or doesn't change. 
what what things are timeless, what things were true back in you know the the 1900s that are still true today, and those yes. are kind of the core things that um, the enduring things that we can hold on to. That you know these things have stood the test of time, and there's there's probably a reason why. What can we learn from them? What can we hold on to, even if if life looks very different now? What are those those core values and those core truths that um, stand the test of time, and how can we hold on to those? Right. Wonderful. Yes. Karen, this has been a fantastic conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? Um, I have a um, an online Facebook group called The Posse. If you just search mm. for The Posse, you can find it. That's where I'm the most active online. Uh, we talk every day, Monday through Friday um, in that group. Um, also, I have a newsletter. I would be uh, thrilled for people to sign up for that. You can find that on my website, which is just karenwittemeyer.com. And um, those are probably the two best ways to, to stay in touch with me. Great. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us today. It was a joy. Thank you for having me. Well, my friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Karen Wittemeyer. Please be sure to check out the show notes because from there you can get to either of Karen's latest books and purchase them. The Heart's Charge seems like an exciting read and Under the Mistletoe would be a great purchase for someone who enjoys that kind of fiction for Christmas. I also want to remind you if you're enjoying Historical Fiction Unpacked, please be sure to subscribe um, and also leave a rating and review because that helps other lovers of historical fiction to find the show. So if you haven't left a review already, please do. It really helps out the show. Also, if you're interested, join the Facebook group. You can get to that from the show notes as well, or you can just search on Facebook for Historical Fiction Unpacked podcast group. We talk about the show every week in that group. Also, if you're interested in helping out the show even more, join our community over on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Allison Treat. Allison is with one L-A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T. You can also get there from the show notes. So be sure to visit the show notes for all the links you need. If you can't get there from your podcatcher app, you can get there at allisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com splash slash B-L-O-G. I'm going to leave that in there just so you guys know that I mess up what I'm saying all the time. Well, friends, as usual, I'm going to leave you with a quote. This one is from Catherine Anthony. She said, the lovers of romance can go elsewhere for satisfaction, but where can the lovers of truth turn if not to history? So keep reading historical fiction, my friends, and I will talk to you again next week.